Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast here on the Raised with Jesus Podcast. Uh, let me begin by saying that the views reflected, uh, views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Shoreland Lutheran High School, Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, uh, Water of Life Evangelical Lutheran Church, or our wives, uh, or even ourselves on some days. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with Zephaniah the Prophet. Today our guest is Professor Aaron Christie from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, uh, professor of, uh, well, what, are, are you homiletics and uh, what, what else? Homiletics and uh, worship. Well, welcome, Professor Christie. Good to be here. So, Aaron, uh, one of the things we like to ask then is, uh, where have you served in your ministry? Because you've got to be on 25 years in the ministry, correct? Yeah, don't don't tell anyone, but we'll be having a little bit of a celebration on campus here late in October for my 25th anniversary in ministry. So it was actually July 13th this summer was my uh, the uh, 25th anniversary of my ordination. Um, where I served, I one of the one of the fun places of service. I know it's illegal to tell vicar stories, but I I had the blessing of actually vicaring at St. Matthew's in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which uh, was a fascinating vicar year. Um, uh, where else would you get to preach German every third Sunday or so while living in the murder capital uh, per capita of the state of Michigan? It was it was really quite a year. Um, thoroughly love that. I heard I heard about Benton Harbor that. Uh... It's it's the poorest, the second poorest city in the state of Michigan, uh, which somebody compared to being like the second oldest member on the cast of 60 Minutes. <laughs> I have not heard that one before. What I did hear is that uh, the term white flight uh, was coined in the 1960s from what happened in, in Benton Harbor. And then that bridge between Benton Harbor and St. Joe, Michigan has been termed, uh, right over the St. Joseph River there, has been termed uh, the longest bridge in America. So it, it was a fascinating year to spend there. Um, I'm sorry that I sort of jumped there. in and interrupted so rudely like that. It's just that I had the uh, distinct privilege of being the last pastor to preach in German at that congregation. So it, we, that's a little bit of overlap for Professor yeah. Christine and myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm baiting you there, Jeremy. Um, but then as far as, uh, as far as called service in the ministry, um, back in 97, call day here at seminary, I was assigned to be associate pastor at Faith Lutheran down south of the Cheddar Curtain uh, in Antioch, Illinois. Spent 13 years there as an associate and then back in uh, July of 2010, transitioned uh, to be third man associate at Trinity in Waukesha, uh, right downtown Waukesha. And then actually 10, 10 years to the week, uh, transitioned here to the seminary back in the summer of 2020 uh, to uh, teach in the areas of homiletics, um, worship, be dean of service, dean of chapel here at seminary, and also in my spare time have the joy of directing the men in the seminary chorus. So why don't you explain to our listeners, Aaron, what uh, what you teach with homiletics? What uh, homiletics looks like here at the seminary, it's the uh, the art of preaching. 
Uh, and so I, I actually, it's kind of fun um, being a rookie prof here and actually um, a solid third to almost a half of the seminary faculty is, is pretty much brand spanking new within the last three to four years. Uh, that in my first course on preaching last year to the juniors, the first year guys here at the seminary, um, I told the guys that I have had the privilege of preaching law and gospel for 23 years and have uh, taught the art of preaching to seminarians exactly never, and uh, that I am a class ahead of them, and by that I mean no, really, I am. <laughs> and so last year was my first time preaching, or first time teaching, first year preaching. And really, I mean, that is, is really a course on fundamentals. Um, how do you study a text? What do you look for in a text? Um, how do you analyze a text uh, so that hopefully it influences the way your, your sermon is going to take shape? Uh, how then do I outline a sermon logically? Um, how do I, I take that outline, make it into a sermon that's, that's hopefully uh, worth listening to? And then you've got all the mechanics of, of how do you memorize, how do you project voice, etc. Basically, all of, the, all of the fundamentals of preaching uh, goes into that first year of homiletics. Now, this year is the first time that I'm teaching middlers, second year guys at the seminary, uh, the art of preaching this first semester, Old Testament texts, Old Testament narrative texts specifically. And then next semester will be, uh, I'll have the guys writing their first sermon on an epistle text. Um, how do you uh, deal with the letters of Paul when the content, for instance, is, is so very doctrinal and so very dense uh, that you need a little bit of a different approach uh, than if you're, if you're preaching a parable of Jesus, for instance. And my speech at the beginning of uh, this semester, which my first class was actually yesterday, um, I told the middlers once again, I've, I've had the blessing of preaching for 25 years now, uh, but I've taught the art of preaching Old Testament texts exactly never. Uh, and so at the, at the end of this year, I'll actually have taught all the courses, the core courses that I'm supposed to teach for the first time. Uh, and that'll kind of be a milestone for me. And then I can begin to worry, uh, hopefully, about making those courses just a little bit uh, better for the guys to sit through. One of my first uh, times that I got to know Pastor Christie was uh, when my wife was teaching in Kenosha and we would uh, go down to see this uh, new beautiful uh, sanctuary that uh, they had built in, in Antioch there, Illinois. And um, so I, I know that that's something that you've, you've spoken at the seminary about when I was there. And I wonder what you can tell our listeners about uh, what, what it's like and what goes into the whole process of uh, building a church. How long does this podcast last? <laughs> Just, I, I, I really love architecture. Um, it was interesting, assigned to Antioch, the Lord really, really blessed the ministry down there. And we were bursting at the seams at that old sanctuary on the, on the uh, uh, shoulder of Highway 83 in Antioch. Um, we knew we had to do something because we, we truly were out of room. Uh, the congregation had purchased 15 acres, probably a, a mile south and in a mile west out on Grass Lake Road from, from where the, or for when the old church was. Um, 
I absolutely love that topic of of architecture and how it it can be a a great assistant in proclaiming the the gospel of Jesus. Um, the old, for instance, the old congregation, our architect uh, that we hired, uh, described the old church as a tube of toothpaste. Um, that we, you know, you had 250 seats inside the sanctuary. We had a narthex that was about eight by eight, and then about a dozen steps immediately after that postage stamp of a narthex. And I'd hear nonstop from people that the congregation wasn't friendly, etc. Well, there's a reason for that. Um, if you stopped to, to talk to anyone whatsoever, you'd very quickly be pushed down those back steps like a tube of toothpaste uh, right outside the door. And what a neat thing it was, for instance, at the new site out on the southwest side of Antioch that the commons out there, I think, was about 40 by 50 feet, just a real generous space. Uh, to allow people to remain after service and, and talk and enjoy each other and a cup of coffee together. And shockingly, when you give people room to talk, they actually stay around and, and are friendly to each other. Um, in the sanctuary, you know, we, we got rid of all carpeting and, and paid attention to things like, like acoustics. And um, if a room is acoustically sound, it's kind of a crazy thing that people naturally start to sing with a little more gusto. Uh, the old sanctuary was really, really dark and, and full of shadows and in lighting, etc. You know, the Lord created us to be uh, physical, spiritual creatures, um, which means that eyesight is important, hearing is important, being able to speak is important, and, and that new facility just really, I, I thought, undergirded the, the core activities of worship in a really neat way. So so with that, uh, a couple of things, Aaron. I was just talking to someone recently because uh, they're looking at looking for a church home in the Wisconsin Synod, and so they said, I just can't decide because by us, we got all kinds of churches in Racine and Caledonia, and then water of life we've got two different campuses and i told him i said you know i love the pastors nearby uh they're really good friends you know same kinds of means of grace at all of them except that at our church we have kringle every single sunday uh we have kringle so is that, is, an, outreach, is that an outreach effort at that is my Danish, that is, the Danish lutherans of racine county well i think it's to any person any person with taste buds to have to have Kringle uh, but I just bring that up just because of the, the fellowship uh, we just redid our fellowship room just before COVID hit and it, it, the it's really loud but it fills up Jeremy's there on Sunday and just to have that space like you're talking about to have Christians come together uh, before and after the service is so important yeah just to give just to give our listeners a point of reference the uh, if you go to Water of Life, the Racine campus, uh, the the panels uh, up at the front of the church uh, that we have that change out every season of the church year were uh, painted by the same artist who uh, painted the uh, triptych uh, panels that you have at uh, Antioch that you had at Antioch there. Yeah, it's it's fun. We uh, we did in you know the marching orders to the architect at Antioch 
um, went something along these lines. We want a church with several classic concepts, but also has a modern American vibe. And I, one of the classic concepts was uh, Rarados uh, on the wall behind the altar, a, a triptych, um, paintings, three images back there, a, a center panel uh, that would not change, and then two side panels that would change out depending on if you were Advent, Christmas, uh, or Easter Ascension, etc. Uh, very, very classic old world concept. Um, when I first raised that idea of, of having those paintings, that triptych uh, on the altar wall there, um, every member I talked to remembered being a member of AAA. And when I was a kid, you'd get these triptych maps before there was such a thing as a global uh, positioning map on your iPhone. And you'd keep on turning these triptych maps over uh, as you drove along on your, on your family summer vacation. So there are triptychs and then there are triptychs. And uh, I think Faith Antioch, um, I'm almost certain, was the first Wells congregation to have a triptych. Uh, Rarados on the altar wall, those three paintings. And it's been kind of a, a neat thing to see. I know that there was a triptych installed out at Resurrection in Verona, on out southwest of Madison out there. And significantly, uh, there is also a triptych installed in the Chapel of Christ up at Martin Luther College. Um, there I you know, got a, a, just a little bit of a smile on my face. Um, several years ago, my son was singing for the college choir at MLC, uh, and I went down to Faith Antioch, first time I had been back in a long time down there, and uh, I'm listening to all the college kids uh, before the concert, and they're, they're surveying the sanctuary, etc., and I heard one of the college kids say, ooh, they built it to look just like the chapel on, of the Christ. And then my, uh, I was such a proud dad at that moment, I heard my, my son Carl say in his deep, deep voice, check out the date on the stone. Uh, they built the Chapel of the Christ to kind of look like this place. And so kind of leading the, uh, the, leading the charge <laughs> yeah. of restoring the triptych in, in American Lutheranism. There but you go. interesting, the 20-somethings of uh, Antioch, when they'd come to the church for the first time, they, they really loved it. It... Uh, the sanctuary does have an American feel to it uh, that that is just lovely, uh, but there are some old world concepts like a triptych and and a crucifix hanging over the altar. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the triptych because I was going to mention that too, Jeremy. That uh, when I first came to our church, uh, there were two art pieces. Uh, that were hung up there in the 70s because they had redone our sanctuary in the 70s, which is not a good time to redo anything with architecture because it looked like 70s pieces. And when we took them down, these art pieces, one of my older ladies said, I cried. And I was, oh, no, you're upset that I took them down. And she said, no, I was upset when they went up. <laughs> she cried when they went up because they were not very... I pleasing people would come in to the sanctuary and what are those and I try and explain them and then yeah we had the same artist Melanie Schutte that you had who lives in Racine and she did our paintings to the same thing have a like a triptych so our stained glass window of Jesus as the good shepherd above the altar which is always there obviously and then she painted ours 
to look like stained glass windows. And the effect is so good that when they first went up, people thought that they were stained glass. Uh, and, and, yeah, and then those change out throughout the year. And then like you were saying, uh, oh, and I, I love walking people into the sanctuary and explaining everything to them and explaining the meaning that's hidden in each of these paintings. And I just started a class now on uh, an adult confirmation class going through the worship service. But like you said before, Aaron, to be able to use everything that's there in the sanctuary, the stained glass windows, the paintings, uh, the pews, the altar, the pulpit, the baptismal font, and so forth, and start walking people through this and say, this is what this means. And they're just like, whoa, that's so neat. Uh, that there's deep theology in everything that we do as Lutherans. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, that idea of intentionality behind how we build, how we design, how we worship, that is is something that uh, really makes my heart happy to hear uh, brothers really going after that, you know, that we're not simply pragmatist or, or functional. Um, you know, a pulpit is more than you got to have a place to set your Bible and notes uh, an altar is more than, well, you got to stand somewhere when you pray. Uh, font is more than, well, you got to have something to hold water when you need it. Uh, but all of these things can, can teach on a continual basis uh, each and every weekend. Yeah, I, I guess uh, Lutheran worship is kind of a slow burn. Uh, <laughs> it's caught, it's caught, uh, but it's caught over the long haul, I think. But one of the things I was going to mention, too, that was interesting, you didn't have this and faith but because the artist was local and a number of our members had seen her artwork at your church and elsewhere they they said well this would be awesome if she does our paintings but the only request is we don't have anyone that we know as the models because we've seen her brother the former vicar and so forth as the models for jesus and john the baptist and when you go to the chapel of the christ I, I can see one of the first Evan members from Racine up there on that main painting. And then I was actually talking to someone while we were biking this morning. He didn't realize this, that the model for Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus is a was a 12-year-old boy from our school and first Evan. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting when that young man showed up on MLC's campus to be a teacher, and then everyone got excited because they had Jesus on campus. Oh. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's you know, kind of a neat uh, a thought that in art, all of those classic paintings, uh, every one of those was a, was a real person at one point or another that was standing there in the studio and became these figures uh, in these, these, classic, these classic portraits. Um, is kind of touching for me to think about it. Um, I'm actually the godfather of the man's daughter, uh, but in the panel of, of one of the panels at Faith Antioch, uh, the man that was Simeon uh, holding the baby Jesus in his arms uh, was a man who kind of had, I'll, I'll say, a, a tragic life story. He was in an accident, um, significant... Um, uh, damage to his head, struggled with migraines tremendously, uh, lost his job, etc. When we met him at Faith Antioch, he was really kind of a hard-boiled, East Coast Catholic turned agnostic, 
And slowly but surely over the years, as his children were in the school, he kind of began to warm up to the gospel, um, was eventually uh, brought into membership at Faith, and he was painted there in that altar. And I hear that a few years ago, he did indeed go to, to glory, and his eyes are now seeing his salvation. And so that to me, that's kind of a, a touching thing that this, this man who... Uh, really wanted nothing to do with Jesus for a significant portion of his life, is now painted uh, holding the, the baby Christ in his hands, uh, and now he's uh, receiving the uh, uh, the salvation of his soul with Christ forever. So, neat thing. If I'm remembering right, if I'm remembering the right painting, uh, did, did he actually have like a, a pretty big, big bushy beard? beard? Yeah, yeah. He had the facial hair you need to be a simian. <laughs> uh the only the only difficulty, Aaron, is that I was taking some uh, visitors after church one day and I was showing them paintings and so forth. And then we were talking about them and gave them the same story about the models. And then he said, well, one of the apostles, he looks like Brad Pitt. <laughs> so now the issue is I can't unsee Brad Pitt in the paintings. Yeah. I don't think the, it's really Brad Pitt. <laughs> leave it a leave it another fifty years on the wall, which hopefully it will be there for fifty years. You know, good art as a way of hanging around a while. Uh, that those paintings will be there when uh, the Brad Pitt of today is the Humphrey Bogart of, of uh, you know yesteryear. So, yeah, I was just gonna say next to another generation will call him Ryan Gosling. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Jim, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Sure. So today our gospel is from Luke 14. I'll read verse 1 and then verses 7 through 14. One Sabbath day when Jesus went into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat bread, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how they were selecting the places of honor, he told the invited guests a parable. When you are invited to someone by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline in the place of honor, or perhaps someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. The one who invited both of you may come and tell you, give this man your place. Then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will tell you, friend, move up to a higher place. Then you will have honor in the presence of all who are reclining at the table with you. Yes, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who had invited him, When you make a dinner or a supper, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, so that perhaps they may also return the favor and pay you back. But when you make a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Certainly you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. So, uh, Aaron, what, what difference did it make where people sat at this formal dinner? Well, if we're really kind of casual with all of this in American society, I, I remember I was in Germany a few years back and, uh, my, I asked my host sister, what do Germans think about Americans? And she said, well, you, you Americans are loud and you're superficial. 
And I thought, well, what? Loud, I understand. I've been told I'm, I'm not blessed with an inside voice, but superficial, I'm having a, a difficulty understanding what you mean. And she said, well, you Americans, you say come on over anytime, but you really don't necessarily mean it. Uh, that, you know, we kind of tend to be nicey-nice to absolutely everyone. You know, good old-fashioned American egalitarianism. We're, we're all, uh, all created equal and uh, we're equal in the eyes of the law. Uh, but in, in traditional society, you know, there, there kind of was a, a pecking order always to society. You had the clergy, you had the nobles, you had the, uh, the city fathers, um, you had the elders of the people, etc. And, and all of this was kind of very, very carefully choreographed. Uh, that to go to dinner at someone's house wasn't to come on over anytime and and enjoy a brat and a beer and a slice of Kringle on the patio, uh, but but this was a this was a significant issue uh, to be dining in the home of a prominent Pharisee. Uh, that this man, hypothetically, I, I suppose, could have been a man as a prominent Pharisee that sat on the on the Sanhedrin down in Jerusalem and in. Um, not too far of a stretch. Maybe he would have been one that eventually would pass judgment on Jesus. Uh, but you are called to this home of a prominent Pharisee, and, and that seating order at table uh, was not something that was accidental. Uh, that was an important point in table fellowship in, uh, in Jewish culture in the first century. So then, Jeremy, why did Jesus tell the guests that the Pharisees tell us the parable of the wedding feast? What point does that have it all in this story. It kind of reminds me of uh, one of my college German courses where we uh, we were studying and translating German Märchen. These are the German. These are fairy tales. They're grim grim fairy tales type of thing. And uh, what our instructor told us was that uh, years ago, or sent a century or two ago, uh, that's that's how you could make criticisms of uh, the the. The government or people who are in charge of society is you just tell a fairy tale and uh, it was actually being critical of uh, the powers that be but uh, they couldn't you couldn't get in trouble for it because it was a fairy tale it's a very indirect way of making your point and uh, trying to offer some criticism and i think that's kind of what you could say jesus is doing here is he, he's he's pointing out sin uh, and he's pointing out sinful motives, but he's doing it very indirectly through a parable. It's easier to listen to. It's not as confrontational. So then what Jesus is getting at here, obviously, is teaching about humility. So I'm going to ask each of you guys this. Uh, how would you, Aaron, teach humility to these young men that are at the seminary? And then Jeremy how would you teach, like say in a modern day parable or just teach humility to high schoolers? And I'll talk about maybe teaching humility to, to kids. Bring, bring back GA, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe not. You know, in, in, I think you bring up an interesting point there, Jeremy. It's, it's one thing uh, to be humble, to not take yourself so seriously. Uh, it's another thing to be the agent of uh, that I'm the man that's going to go and teach others humility or how not to take themselves seriously. Uh, that if I find I'm in the position that I'm going to be the agent to teach others how to eat humble pie, uh, boy, have I just become a, a, a pride-filled cassette at, at that moment, huh? Um, 
I don't I when I think of humility a little bit in our day and age, maybe I, I think of uh, all the social media out there. What is it that you you see this nonstop um, scrolling of the absolute best uh, moments of your life? Um, but is is that real life that you see up there on on social media? All these vignettes of when we were just uh, delirious with joy and we got what we wanted and got to go. Uh, where we wanted and got to check the item off the bucket list, et cetera. And I'm, I'm guilty of all of that, I, I suppose, of putting those things up there. Um, but it's always interesting what's, what's never, ever put up there. The times when I was sick and, and felt absolutely miserable. Uh, the time when I felt like I was, was all alone. Um, I, human con- the human condition is, is a very humiliating thing. Uh, this side of Eden, and it seems like um, that side of the human condition, we we just kind of like to keep out of each other's eyes. Jeremy, how would you teach humility to high schoolers? One of the uh, biggest things that I've taken away in recent years, and I think I've said this on this podcast before, is that, uh, first of all, we think that we're being humble when we tear ourselves down or when we talk bad about ourselves, and that's not really humility uh humility if you look at uh oh, i'm gonna forget now it's romans uh it's it's where paul writes in romans i think it's chapter nine or 13 somewhere in there uh where where paul says let everybody think uh think of yourselves with a so, with sober mindedness uh in other words it's not degrading yourself uh it's certainly not inflating yourself uh it is uh, simply looking at yourself honestly and saying, I have these gifts and here's how I can use them. And I don't have those gifts. So I'm not going to pretend that, that uh, I can do this or that. I love that section from Romans of, of not thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought, that all that's within the context of, of our, our uh, life as a child of God um, which in doing daily life, that is a spiritual sacrifice of praise. I think there's a neat intersection, isn't there, with um, vocation, who has God made me, and humility. Uh, that if the Lord has made me a father, uh, that I serve with humility when I serve my children in love. Uh, that if I'm a pastor, um, I'm not a, a lord of men's souls, uh, but I serve with humility as a shepherd of souls that God, the shepherd of souls that God has called me to be. And as I do those things um, here in real time in life, that that's a, a spiritual sacrifice. And I don't build myself up because I'm doing that, uh, but I, I simply do that because that's what the Lord has given me to do today. And I was thinking of humility too with this. I remember roughing a boys soccer game last year and there's a little guy on the team he's probably an eighth grader but he was small and he was really good but he just kept bouncing off of players and he and I wouldn't call it because I'm I was a little guy still I'm a little guy and uh, I figured hey you just gotta work harder and it wasn't a foul anyhow well he just blew up one time at me and he yelled at the ref well I just pull him aside so you can't talk to me like that and let it go well after the game i'm getting everything ready in my bag to leave and then 
the dad of that boy comes over and oh shoot you know because you know parents can be way too invested in these games that don't mean anything and the dad said to his son what do you need to say and the son looked down and then looked up at me and said i'm sorry i shouldn't have talked to you like that that's not my place and i bring that up because that was the dad teaching his son humility yeah. here he was the best player on the team but understanding uh, that uh, there's a place for him and i heard another example of humility while i was uh, biking up here this morning listening to a podcast and had kirk cameron on so aaron you you know who kirk cameron is your wife my wife know who kirk cameron is better than jeremy does because he's too young but Kirk Cameron, back when uh, Aaron and I were young, you know, he was the hot star on Growing Pains. But I don't know if you if you know this that uh, he was talking the podcast. You know, he was seventeen and a half, and he was an atheist, and he was a devout atheist until this young lady came on that was supposed to be his girlfriend came on the show, and he wanted to take her out, but she was a Christian and the first date was at church and uh, the Holy spirit worked through her and her dad and the pastor of the church in such a way that he said, he remembers being in a sports car and this girl's father had told him, you know, Kirk, you can't keep asking people about God. You got to talk to God about God. And he just, he said, I don't know. I didn't know how to pray. I figured closing my eyes was a good thing to do. So I closed my eyes and I just talked to God. And, you know, the Holy Spirit worked through that word that he had been hearing in church and so forth and, you know, converted him. And now he's a very strong Christian. And, and he talked too about that young lady that was on growing pains with him now, now was his wife of 30 plus years. They got six kids and so forth. But he talked about that with humility that he said, here I was, that, you know, he, along with Michael J. Fox, those were the hot stars of that day. They could do anything. And he said, I had nothing. When mm-hmm. I compared it to what I learned about Christ and him giving up everything for me, that humbled me. And you can just hear that hum- humility all these years later, because, you know, Aaron, he's like our age. Yeah. I, you know, you, you bring up Christ there. I, I, I mean, he is the the epitome, obviously, of humility. And I think the fascinating thing is, is that our pride is so, so absolutely embedded in us uh, that Jesus doesn't come in this gospel lesson and teach us a, a lesson of 10 things that we need to do in order to become a more humble person this week, which is you know, kind of, kind of prideful at its core, uh, but but Jesus came not as uh, primarily as an example of humility, uh, but as a savior uh, from from our pride. And uh, I had that that idea of humility as I'm, you know, thinking about this. Isn't it isn't it true that that kind of classically uh, they would pit vices and virtues against each other? Uh, that you've got the the vice of pride. Uh, and that the virtue would be humility, um, you know, that uh, the vice is laziness and the, uh, and the virtue would be industry. Uh, maybe it helps us see what humi- humility is just a little bit better uh, when I think of just all that, th- the thousand and one ways that I've been uh, so very prideful uh, in, in recent memory, huh? Looking at this, then, 
Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. Nope, go ahead. So, Aaron, why does Jesus tell the host to invite the, quote, poor, crippled, lame, and blind to a dinner? Uh, I, I think there Jesus is kind of putting his thumb in the eyes of the Pharisees. Um, Jesus really goes here for the jugular. It strikes me that these are the exact types of people uh, that were precluded from being a priest, according to Levitical law, uh, because of their, their physical maladies. Uh, and so those, those people that the Pharisees would have excelled uh, at discriminating against and felt that they had a, a biblical warrant is viewing them as second-class citizens that could never really function uh, by virtue of their blindness in the uh, tier of the spiritual elite, the priest, uh, that these were people maybe that they kind of had a right sort of uh, to look down on. And Jesus says, no, these are, are precisely uh, the types of people that you should be inviting to your dinners. And I, I think most wonderfully, um, you know, these are precisely the people that Jesus helped selflessly in his ministry time and time again. That Jesus um, isn't worried about sitting next to the head Pharisee. Uh, Jesus is worried about setting himself among the crippled, the blind, the lame, uh, to seek and save that which was lost. So with that, Jeremy, uh, Jesus tells the host to invite the uh, you know to invite the poor, the lame, and so forth, not to invite their friends or brothers, relatives, rich neighbors, because they can return the favor and pay you back. And then he says in the next verse, you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. What does he mean there if you're going to be repaid at the resurrection? Uh, one thing that... Uh... Luther often talks about in his writings is that um, God never wants to be uh, uh, indebted to anybody. Uh, he never, he always wants uh, to be the one who is giving more than he is receiving. And uh, so he, he doesn't want any, any uh, thing on his ledger that says, I, I owe thus and such to somebody. And uh, if you are, um, oh, nuts. I, I totally derailed my train of thought there. Uh, it, it's, it, it's basically, we're always doing things to try to, to get something in return for something. We, we, you know, we, we hope that this sacrifice I'm making now will turn out well for me in the future. Uh, and, uh, when you do that to people who have the means to repay you, uh, then, uh, they can, uh, you know, send you a gift basket or a, a gift card or a thank you note. Uh, but it's the people who are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind uh, that uh, don't have the time or the ability or the means to pay you back in this life. But it's God. That's where I was going with the whole uh, Luther quotes before. It's God who is is going to make sure that uh, you you are you are repaid. Um, that it's not how you get to heaven. That needs to be said crystal clear. Uh, you you only enter eternal life because of Jesus and what he has done. But uh, it, when it comes again to those rewards, uh, Jesus talks a lot about that reward aspect of uh, your Christian life. Well, you know, guys, I think this is just kind of how sinful we are, because I was thinking about this since last night. My wife is uh, the middle school aide in our grade school, and she came across a family last night, our ice cream social that is just struggling paycheck to paycheck. It's a grandmother with her grandchild. And 
I said, well, we can definitely help her out. We've got uh, lots of food in our food pantry and gift cards and so forth. And, but I struggle in my own sinful nature to say, all right, why am I doing this? Is it my sanctified self? Because this is what we want to do and be able to help them out. Because I know in my sinful nature, I also want to use this as an opportunity to hopefully bring the family into church and bringing the family into church. That would be sanctified too. But, you know, as a sinful person, is it my pride? Because I'm trying to bring them in, gain more members. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what I'm getting at there. That that whole thing of sanctified and sinful nature, just always at war, that pride and humility. Yeah, I, I, I kind of look at it, uh, maybe an illustration would be money. Um, you know, money is just a tool. It's a thing. Um, but with money, I can give it so that the gospel goes to um, a foreign country or with that money uh, you can traffic people in a foreign country that the human heart takes that which is just a thing and then makes it into uh, an act of loving spiritual service for the Lord or um, makes it into uh, another creative way to sin (laughs) and I think of so much of ministry is is like that, that we do what we do, uh, and hopefully it's the new child of faith in me uh, that's in the driver's seat with a whole lot of that, um, because everyone likes more people in the pews, uh, because maybe that says that my ministry is is effective and I might be a, a good pastor, etc. Um, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm realizing that uh, what I do um, isn't always that sanctified side of me that I'm I'm doing some of that uh, because I want Aaron Christie to look pretty good sometimes, and uh, it's a dreadful that's, thought. That's usually how I do my ministry, is I'm trying to make you look good, Aaron. <laughs> you you got to be a miracle worker to make this face look good. Hey, so the last question I have on this text, unless you guys want to riff on it some more, is since we have a homiletics professor here. How would you break this down with your with your class? Your, well, are they doing the Gospels? Is that the junior year, the first year, or what? Yeah, junior. Now, lo and behold, I'm I'm teaching Old Testament this uh, this semester. Uh, I think this one. I know it, I always you know it's a, a sin to not well not a sin. It's sometimes ill advised to make every sermon into a question. Uh, but last time I preached this one, I actually used the question, where should I sit? Um, and then kind of threw out, you know, that idea of uh, those sitting in that exalted spot will be humbled and those sitting in that low spot will will be exalted. And then kind of my law and gospel kicker is, is um, where am I sitting in relation to Jesus in all of this? Um, am I making Jesus into my debtor by all the wonderful things that I'm doing uh, for him that Jesus should just be thrilled and, and pleased as punch because he has a person like me on his team? Um, heaven forbid, uh, but then look where Jesus sits. Um, that the one who sits on a throne in heaven did not forsake sitting in a manger of wood, didn't forsake sitting in the waters of the, of the Jordan, 
uh, didn't forsake sitting there at his disciples' feet, washing the crud from beneath their toes, uh, didn't, even, uh, didn't even forsake sitting upon the cross on a God-awful Friday for us, and, and even went to that point of sitting there in a cold, uh, damp grave for three days. Uh, but the one who utterly humbled himself, utterly humbled himself, uh, has been, been raised to the highest heavens. Um, so, I, not surprisingly, Christ is the absolute key uh, to, to everything that he says here. Rather than, a, a, like I say, a, a checklist of uh, how to be more humble successfully this week, uh, that all of this leads us to Jesus, uh, the ultimate in humility and the ultimate in exaltation. With that, uh, something you, as you were talking about that, Aaron, I was just thinking. I know you, you're new at teaching the homiletics, but have you heard from these guys or maybe other guys in the past that they just figure that they're going to run out of things to say? Because yeah, you know, because oh, I've said it all before. Yeah, I don't think they. Uh they at this point they don't fear running out of things to say the homiletical sin that i see in all of those first sermons is that they've been studying for four long hard years at martin luther college all their greek and their hebrew and now you know everything in the catechism and the kitchen sink to boot uh is put into that first yep. sermon <laughs> and the and the difficulty is you know it's not unbiblical what they're saying but it's just that this this section, this this reading of scripture that they're dealing with, this portion of biblical text, really has nothing to do with what they're saying. <laughs> so well, you yeah, know, there's a lot of sins in the Ten Commandments, but <laughs> but um, focus, focus, focus on on um, an attitude of humility toward my God and an attitude of humility uh, and loving service toward my neighbor. That's what this text is talking about. Focus yeah, I, on that. yeah I remember um, my first, the first sermon I, I preached, and I preached in my home congregation at Davis Star and Jackson, and some friends, my parents came, and one of them, Eric, said, hey, Mike, that was a great sermon. It's like I heard the whole Bible in 20 minutes, and it just stuck with me, and I saw him a few years ago, and, and I told him, I said, I remember what you said, and he goes, I didn't mean that as rip. I thought that was a really good one. I said, yeah, but. It, it's like you said, I was trying to put everything in there uh, that didn't fit. And yeah. the reason I, I was thinking of that is the way you did it is uh, the way you were talking about Jesus on the cross in the manger uh, in the tomb is just to be able to teach our young men and older men like Jeremy and myself that have been preaching for a while to be textual, but also then uh, to tie things in is is to challenge ourselves to use that creative language uh, yeah. to give those word pictures and so forth uh, and I think it's it's so important that was one of the things that uh, another another pastor I, I hold dear uh, his opinion and he he had just complimented something I had written he said be, and I didn't even know what I was doing and he just said because you're able to, tie things in that you had written before and then give those pictures again at the end and so that you can wrap it all up. Yeah, one of the things I often talk about is is taking the way that things are worded in the text, the rhetoric of the text, 
and let that influence the way that you say them in your sermon or the the rhetoric of your sermon. Another difficult thing, you know, you the guys come out of Martin Luther College, they they really know their Greek and they really know their Hebrew pretty well. Um, but not necessarily everything in the Greek or Hebrew is going to get you homiletical mileage in a sermon. Uh, but there are some things, you know, in each of those texts, uh, as you kick the tires of each and every one of those sentences, that you go, ah, there's something there that, that could be really, really good. Um, you know, some salt and pepper in your sermon. Uh, for, you know, if I were preaching this one uh, again or writing again, uh, there's a little indicator there in the original Greek, for instance, that the Pharisees, they were closely watching Jesus and they kept on closely watching him during that banquet. Uh, or when you get to the actual banquet itself in, in verse 7, that they were, they were looking for their seats. And they were doing that really for quite a while uh, as Jesus is watching them. So it was, you know, um, uh, Jesus was kind of in the crucible there in, in verse 1. He was the object um, of, a, of an uncomfortable stare uh, by these men for quite a while. And then they're figuring out what the pecking order was at the table. Uh, this was a game of pharisaical musical chairs that was going on at that banquet for some time. And I, I think there's some really neat pictures that you could then bring up in your sermon uh, just based on the tense of a, of a couple Greek verbs there uh, that makes it somewhat fascinating on what actually was going on there in real time in that dining room. I'm just glad that over the course of this podcast, I've gone from uh, being the young guy who doesn't know Kirk Cameron to being counted among the older guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, you know, you're absolutely right about the taking up the textual flavor. So like what you're saying is if you're preaching on a psalm, uh, then maybe your sermon should sound a little more like poetry. If you're preaching on a narrative, then there should be uh, more of a storytelling element. Uh, if it's if it's a letter of uh, an epistle, then uh, then maybe that's where you get a little more personal or a little more transparent. And and uh, that that could like I, I've heard it described by uh, others as um, almost like the text is a positive version of a pathogen that you you want to get in. You just want to get infected with. You want to uh, get saturated. Maybe a better word is saturated with, so that when you talk you are talking in those terms. Yeah, I, I, guys really seem to sweat that, Jeremy. Uh, you know, do I do inductive or do I do deductive or do I do story type? So, I can't say as a preacher of 23 years that I ever really thought about that a whole lot. Uh, instead, you, like you say, a pathogen, you just kind of want to catch the text and let it have its way with you. And then after it's had its way with you for five days of, of prayerful thought, well, I'll see what I what I write at the Starbucks on Friday morning at uh, at six a.m. and uh, we'll see how it's looking uh, at noon when when I'm all done with it, you know. Yeah, and I was looking at this too. Uh, when I asked you before, Aaron, about if guys run out of things to to preach, you know, you you came up with, uh, you know, the way you would preach it a few years ago and the way you would preach it now. And as I was looking at this, and I thought, well. You could do a theme like friend move up to a higher place. Yeah. 
and then you know be able to say well you know we want we would move ourselves up to the higher place or there might be that false humility well maybe i'll go to the back and get moved up and then be able to bring in the gospel you don't you don't even deserve a place anywhere You, you don't even deserve to be in the house let alone at the table and yet jesus invites you to come to the higher place and you can bring in like the last verses of Psalm 23, because everyone knows, you know, a lot of our people know those and love them and to be able to sit at the banquet feast of the King. So. You know, that idea of using rhetoric, um, where do you, where do you sit? Uh, Where I deserve to sit is on the outside in the dark uh, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, at the end of the game, where are we sitting? We're sitting at the wedding feast of the Lamb with Jesus. Uh, and <laughs> we don't have the one seat, and we do have the other seat because of where Jesus willfully sat uh, in his ministry as he came to seek and save. So we have some time. Jeremy, you want to read the epistle lesson? Because I think what James writes fits really well with our whole topic on humility here. Yes, uh, James chapter 2. My brothers, have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. For example, suppose a man enters your worship assembly wearing gold rings and fine clothing, and a poor man also enters wearing filthy clothing. If you look with favor on the man wearing fine clothing and say, sit here in this good place, but you tell the poor man, stand over there or sit down here at my feet. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil opinions? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you dishonored the poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and don't they drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you? However, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, You are committing a sin, since you are convicted by this law as transgressors. In fact, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. For the one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of freedom. For there will be judgment without mercy on the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So again, Aaron, since you're a homiletics professor, you know, you talked about, you know, the gospel lesson might be easy, easier for some guys to be able to pick out a theme because we were just doing it just by looking at it and a narrative of the Old Testament the same way. What's the, what's the difficulty for these guys that you're training to use an epistle lesson like this one to find that, you know, that theme and parts and so forth. Well, well, let me teach it next semester for the first time, and I'll I'll get back with you. No, <laughs> I I think the 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 difficulty um, you're not at this point dealing with narrative and storytelling. Instead, you're you're really dealing with a distillation, huh? Um, a very very focused. Uh, teaching of a whole lot of Old Testament scripture and New Testament ethics. And uh, boy, the the density of the content really can make it difficult uh, to deal with. So 
in a in a section like in a section like this, judges with evil opinions. Um, you you think of of a whole lot of justice talk in the Old Testament, judging your neighbor, law of God, um, application of this in view of Christ. That's that's all kind of tricky stuff. Uh, and how to be able to deal with that deftly without losing God's people uh, in the pews in the process is uh, is the task at hand when dealing uh, with an epistle like this. In other words, you've got to be uh, comfortable in your skin as a theologian, I think, if you're going to be able to preach a text or uh, an epistle text successfully. Because... I think a text like this, it's easy to become very third use of the law, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you become like uh, every every Christian paperback that you'll buy at Walmart, uh, where it's just here's the three, four things you got to work on this week, and yeah. and uh, life will be just you'll be happy as a clam. Um, and uh, it's uh, human natural human religion, isn't it, to deal with uh, do this, don't do that, and and then God will bless you as a result. Yeah, and there I think of uh, my daughter last week sent me a sermon to listen to, and and I texted her back. I said, this is an hour long. And she said, well, it's only like 45 minutes. And and I listened to it. It was all on, on sex and sexuality and had to do with homosexuality and so forth. And she wanted to know what my opinion was. And I said, well, it wasn't a Lutheran sermon, obviously. Uh, I said it was real. It was a really good talk, and everything was biblical, and I agreed with everything that was said. But it wasn't Lutheran, and so Aaron, what do I mean by? I know you didn't listen to that sermon, obviously, but what characterizes a Lutheran sermon versus forty-five minute talk on whatever topic? Um, I think what characterizes a Lutheran sermon is that the law isn't a checklist so much of uh, uh, modern evangelical modern protestant preaching whether conservative or liberal is we've got this problem over here now we fix it by doing this um almost always ignoring the law as a mirror that shows me my sin you know the american conception of sin is that there's probably five percent that I do that's really, really nasty. I probably should say I'm sorry. Um, I think I saw a poll one time in Newsweek magazine when there used to be a Newsweek uh, that the average American believes they sin ready four times a month. And so there's there's 5% of things that I do over here that are really nasty. I should say I'm sorry. And there's 5% of things that I do over here that were really, really super, and God should be happy that I'm on his team. And there's about 90% of life that I live that's none of God's business, and it's none of yours either. Uh, we're kind of comfortable with that view of life. Uh, the problem is, is that it's, it's absolutely unbiblical uh, that without Christ in our life, 100% of what we do is absolutely sinful. Um, without faith, it is impossible to please God, uh, the scripture says. Um, that sin isn't something we merely do. Um, I, I said some nasty things to my wife. Now I need some biblical uh, helpers uh, to help me be a better communicator in my marriage. Um, no, I am I am a 100% sinner in this marriage, uh, which means that I'm in desperate need of the gospel. Uh, as the forgiveness of my sin, 
and that that love of Christ in the gospel now compels me uh, to go and be the child of God in, in whatever area of life I happen to live. So rather than bouncing around between I have this problem and now here's how I'm going to fix it with some good biblical advice, the Lutheran approach, and I believe it to be a very biblical approach, is here's uh, my problem, which isn't a surprise at all because the scripture shows me who I am and what else would you expect then for a sinner uh, to be sinning, which then takes me directly to my Jesus who came to seek and save sinners just like me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me, an ungodly wretch. And now out of love for Christ, I am compelled uh, to go and be that child of God that he indeed through word and sacrament has made me to be. That's the full law and gospel picture. And sadly, um, that's precisely what you don't hear uh, in the vast majority of Christianity, uh, be it Protestant, Evangelical, or uh, be it Roman Catholic, that that religion, that natural human religion, is I've got some issues, now tell me how I can fix it. And that can sound very, very biblical, but that really has nothing to do with Jesus. So to that, Jeremy, James points out that there's a problem and it's favoritism. So then what does James say is, is a way that we solve favoritism? Uh, that was a little bit different uh, uh, angle than I was, I was on the track of thinking about. Um, okay. Now I'm, now I'm looking into the verses here to see where he talks about fixing favoritism. Um, but it, I, I guess the, the, train of thought that I was on was that, uh, first of all, I couldn't agree more with anything either of you just said, uh, that when it comes to modern evangelicalism or mainline Protestant uh, American religi religiosity, um, that the, the problem is that they turn every uh, sermon that they preach into a checklist of, okay, now here's what you got to do this week to, to be a better person. Uh, and what I think of when I read James, though, is that um, that actually there is something that he's telling us to do in this. This the whole point of his letter is, uh, don't just uh, sit back and and lazily say, well, I'm never going to be able to please God, uh, therefore uh, uh, I'm just going to not even try. He's saying, no, your faith is dead if it has no uh, outward uh, manifestations of good work, and so um, he really does want us not to um, uh, treat people differently when they come to our worship assemblies. Um, he, he really does want us to uh, be consistent in keeping the whole law. Um, and, and so it's, it's not as a checklist to say, I'm going to try to earn God's grace or make myself worthy. Uh, but these are things that he, he wants. He, we, I guess what I'm saying is he does want us to take action. Uh, James is saying here, uh, please do something differently than you've been doing it before, uh, because uh, there there is such a thing as the third use of the law. I'm probably getting defensive because I, I not this year, but in uh, recently I've had students who uh, have challenged me on the third use of the law. And while it is not the thing that we should be trumpeting and uh, uh, promoting uh, above all else, uh, it should be Christ and justification. Uh, there is there is such a thing as the third use of the law, um, and uh, it, 
I, you, you can speak to that if you want. Uh, I also just had a question on, I've always kind of struggled with verse 12 and uh, what is the law of freedom? So uh, somebody take one of those and run with it. Well, first before that question, um, you know, what you were saying, Jeremy, of the, you know, to deal with favoritism, he does use that third use of the law. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So that was the question building on Jeremy's question. Uh, Aaron, do you feel that maybe now, maybe in the past, that we as Lutheran preachers were weak, are weak on preaching the third use of the law? Because I think we should be strong. At least I remember from my homiletics classes at the seminary of, you know, the, using the law as a mirror and then sharing, the, showing the gospel and be specific gospel to specific law, like we talked about before. But do we use specific guide as third use of the law yeah i don't I mean, practically speaking i don't know if it's so much of a third use of the law issue is it is a change in the religious atmosphere or sensitivities or capabilities of the average american today and i've seen that definitely shift in my ministry um where you you just knew that people came to sunday school and les and um, they had a biblical background, or at least some sort of one. Um, that isn't necessarily the case anymore. So that older thought of, I'll preach the law and preach the gospel, and then I'll allow God's people the special dignity and privilege to figure out how that works out in their life. Um, maybe that was okay in a, in a time when people had a, a modicum of biblical literacy. Um, I think in our day and age, uh, where we're becoming more and more secular, is it a third use of the law or is it really a matter of application and illustration where I've preached the law, I've preached Christ and the gospel, um, the, the, the salvation in him they have from that sin that, that bound them, uh, but growing up in a sea of secularism, they really don't have a clue of what it means to now apply that uh, in their life. I, I have this wonderful thing, uh, but, but what do I do with it? Um, I think people do genuinely need help with that. And that isn't necessarily, doesn't need to be prescriptive. Here's three things you need to do this week to be a better communicator. Uh, but I do think um, wasn't it good teaching takes you from the known to the unknown? Uh, maybe the unknown sometimes is, uh, here is, is how I live in a way that humbly seeks the good of those around me. Um, something that I very well may not have thought about before in my life. So and and you can even, or go, go ahead, Jeremy. You, you can even see it in the way that, uh, the Holy Spirit inspires, uh, biblical principles, uh, it's it's it doesn't say uh, do everything decently and in good order. It says let everything be done decently and in good order. It, it's it's here's here's one way that uh, things uh, that that is a God pleasing way for things to go. Yeah, it's and the then in, in the epistle, yeah, and then the epistle there, Paul then goes on and shows them in Corinth what decency and order might look like in their assembly. So I think the third, the issue isn't with the third use of the law, um, preaching it. The issue becomes when we see that working out of the third use of the law as the fix 
for our problem that we had at the beginning with the law. Right. Third use of the law doesn't fix the sin. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus' death on the cross fixes the sin. Right. It's the cure. So, Jeremy, to your question on the law of freedom, so I looked it up in my EHV notes, and there it says the two options can be that uh, that following God's law is not a burden but a real freedom, and so we obey this law gladly out of love for God, or that the term freedom is a clue that refers to the gospel which sets us free. So, All right, Anything else you guys want to bring up on this on this text? Just, just practically, this one hits hard for me. Um, you know, I can think of my my work in the parish. Um, Antioch, Illinois, is a pretty affluent area. Um, Waukesha, we were downtown Waukesha. There was a much wider swath of humanity. We had several group homes in the area, and we had some people that were were wildly blessed. Uh, in their life financially at Waukesha. Um, I don't know. We uh, have people walk in off the street, and it's kind of sometimes, okay, uh, who's going to handle this person uh, to make sure that they don't stick out, etc., cetera, uh, on a Sunday morning, or uh, that they know how we do things around here. But then what a joy it was when someone... A successful friend of a friend all of a sudden comes uh, to church after uh, experiencing worship at a wedding or something like that. That um, how bitten are we by that bug of uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, straight teeth, and no zits? Uh, that that's the kind of folk you want sitting in your pews, um, all the while forgetting that the people with uh, uh, some mental health issues at the local group homes. Uh, that they're in desperate, desperate need of Jesus. They are the blind, the poor, um, it's the lame, etc. Um, plenty of repenting I need to do in, in that area. Same too here at the seminary. Um, there, there are students that you tell them once and, and they've got it figured out. Uh, and there are students that you, you struggle to work with, it seems like, every, every class period, uh, which is the one that I rejoice in teaching more. Uh, plenty to repent of in that area. Well, and what you just said too, Aaron, uh, I just had Jesus Care service for us for this morning at our Caledonia campus for uh, people who, who struggle with a lot of issues. And, you know, tomorrow morning I'll preach. And, you know, I, I think of, you know, the people we, we work so hard to get to come to church, members who may be more affluent and kind of can sometimes take it for granted and yet looking at the faces of the people that were here and especially their parents and they're so appreciative that they may be poor in in monetary wealth and yet they are so rich toward god they're just so excited to be here this morning worshiping and praising god and so yeah that's a that's a lesson to to me and hopefully to all of us I would think, uh, I definitely remember a Jesus Cares service. We had a wonderful Jesus Cares program at Trinity Waukesha. Um, Pastor Schaumburg, who I replaced there, his daughter, Julie, um, she's probably 50-some years old now, um, functioning, I'd, I'd say, as a, as a first grader or so. Um, 
But man, did I, I come to love Jesus Cares. I remember one, one morning uh, looking out and seeing all of them so eager to be there. Uh, and I, I think to myself, of such is the kingdom of God. Uh, and in, indeed it is. All right. Anything else, Jeremy? I'm good. All right. So then this is Michael Zarling with Aaron Christie and Guiding Lightning. Because that was Jeremy's favorite soap opera while at seminary. Uh, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends. Then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>